So in large part to facilitate uh, Gerald's son and his girlfriend's wonderful music, which will be played at the end of this podcast, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the topic that was submitted, which is surviving an artificial life winter. And I thought this was an interesting topic because it came from the uh, you know, relatively bleak financial news and the sense that folks who had been moving towards developing artificial life startups and all these kind of vehicles, and certainly even a year ago I knew of three independent artificial life startups and I'm trying to maintain contact with them. I noticed um, Justin Lyon's Simudine site was down recently, but it could just be because he's in uh, Iraq currently. But anyway, the idea of an artificial life winter, if I can summarize it, is this notion that historically, and certainly this was the case leading up to about the Biota 3 conference, artificial life developers had a, a few um, high-profile uh, talking friends, folks such as uh, obviously uh, Richard Dawkins and Douglas Adams and these kind of folk who were talking very positively with regards to artificial life, but also there were a series of either independent or funded through uh, companies like uh, British Telecom and I think Sun had uh, various artificial life vends and these kind of things. And that all came to an end. And this is kind of described in the uh, winter discussions that certainly uh, Bruce and Gerald and uh, I remember Jeffrey Entrella was part of the conversation as well with regards to what occurred somewhere between kind of 2000, 2001. And certainly the email correspondence that I've had and various other means of communication from folks in the community seem to be very concerned that all the hope and the momentum and the stuff that we've talked about in the Biota podcasts to date could all fall on its face now that potentially there is, um, you know, no investment capital and things like this. And I don't know whether I should start from my personal note or whether I should pass it to Bruce initially to give his impression with regards to the current situation. I mean, what do you think with regards to that narrative, Bruce? Well, certainly I remember it viscerally. I remember in, you know, we were, we, we had done Biota 3 and Gerald had come for that, uh, in San Jose. And it was, it was a nice meeting. It was, there was energy because there were game developers there, and there were two science fiction writers hosting us, and Tom Ray and, and Math Engine and all that, and we've drawn out all that on the blackboard of, of doing some kind of a, almost like an early EvoGrid vision, or at least a portal for A-like developers to, to show their wares. And then in 2000, you know, the next spring, the NASDAQ fell apart, and it, the, the whole gloom descended on Silicon Valley. All my friends, Jan Hauser, left Sun. Uh, stocks crashed. And I just, you could just feel in your gut. I mean, it was just very depressing around here. And a lot of attendees out of the DigiBarn here, they were out of work, and they were permanently out of work. They were in their 50s, and their entire job classification had gone away. So the same thing was, had happened to the Avatar and virtual worlds medium, so I had sort of this double whammy. We were planning for doing Biota of 5 in Australia. Uh, we did Biota 4 uh, in 2001. Uh, Roy Plotnick hosted it at, uh, at the North American Paleontological Convention, but that was a very kind of low-key event, and, and Biota 5 was going to be at Shark Bay in Australia. We were going to return to our roots of doing an adventure conference uh, at the Hamlin Pool Stromatolite Colony. 
and uh, Douglas Adams was very keen to go because he said, I, I will go scuba diving at Monkey Mia, and of course Douglas passed away. And that was kind of one of the early depressing things that, that really took the wind out of the sails. But then there was just no way to get corporate sponsorship after the uh, dot-com crash. It was pretty, it was severe. And uh, I, I, I sensed that the, the downturn, this is not a dot-com crash, this is much larger. So it's, it's really hard to know where it goes. On the other hand, uh, the hobbyist, the dedicated hobbyist, uh, who is underemployed may have more time to do work on on artificial life, and the social networks are so strong now compared to 2000, and the mechanisms for collaborating and how information speeds through the networks and the tools are so much better uh, that that we have a huge leg up for artificial life development that we didn't have, and certainly in the early 90s when you need an SGI or or uh, in the late. Uh, 20th century. Uh, Gerald, do you, what is your feeling about this? Well, you're definitely right on the, on the, on the, the point that we have amazing computer power in our hands relative to that period. So that's one thing that's, uh, that's a distinct advantage. And uh, I, um, I do freelance work here in Holland and uh, hang out with a bunch of freelancers. And uh, something I've heard from several of them is that uh, if the economy starts to turn down, well, one thing is that we'll all have time for our pet projects. And, I mean, certainly that's been my experience, and I think yours as well. I mean, when I moved to the U.S., I, I wrote ApeScript, which was one of the last, you know, major code infusions into Noble Ape, aside from all the wide variety of Intel and Apple-related tweaks and various user-requested functionality. But in terms of major architecture changes, writing ApeScript was really facilitated by my move to the U.S. and, as, as you say, finding consultancy projects and then full-time employment. I mean, is that your sense with regards to Darwin at home too, Gerald? Uh, I don't know. In, in, in some sense, I mean, you know, this is... Um We've talked about this before. It's kind of a hobby, you know. It's it's uh, in, in a way it can't die. There's there, you know, you'd have to uh, I'd have to lose my ability to write code before I would stop working on Darwin at home. So, uh, you know, even whatever whatever happens in the economy, whatever you know, unless somebody takes my computer away, it's going to continue. I think this is a very interesting point that the contemporary hobbyists are in a completely different realm. The thing that irritates me with regards to the narrative associated of, well, you'll have all these wonderful unemployed people will be working on their pet projects, is that uh, ultimately, and I think this is, if I, if I can talk about my own view with regards to this idea of moving into an artificial life winter, I think we've been in an artificial life winter since 1999. I don't think any of the conditions have gotten to the point where a majority of the community could seek even part-time employment from developing artificial life-related applications. Was it the case before uh, before 1999 that people could make uh, you know make their livings in artificial life? I'm not sure it's ever been the case. Well, my understanding is certainly that through uh, companies like Sun and British Telecom, where there was a an active sense that the technology that would come out of artificial life would, would foster artificial life developers in some regard. And I think it's a pity we don't have Jeffrey on the, this call to talk more about that because, I mean, I think Jeffrey's one of the few uh, recent examples who was able to uh, 
work at Linden Labs, at least initially, with the vision that his, you know, immense artificial life-related knowledge would directly benefit Linden Labs. So, I mean, I think that the kind of contemporary discussion with regards to Jeffrey and Linden Labs is the way I understand it was. I mean, certainly my own experience with regards to moving to the Bay Area was almost... I don't want to say almost all the projects I worked on, but certainly a majority of the projects that I was connected with had some component that was artificial life related. As an example, uh, I worked with a, a handheld toy startup, uh, and they had done absolutely nothing, as was the case leading up to uh, you know 2000 2001. They had a wide variety of very high level ideas, but no one had actually written any code. I believe they had a a little brick that, you know, ran some quick basic or something like that. So my background in artificial life there was simple. I wrote simulation code to look at the interactions of each of these handheld toys, work out how battles were going to take place, how evolution would happen, how, you know, they could exchange limbs, how practical these things were. And certainly, you know, my knowledge of artificial life-related stuff was very applicable there. I also worked with a company um, that was making uh, vastly networked games, uh, probably the you know something that went on to become something like Second Life in some regard, and there my knowledge of artificial life was highly useful with regards to network optimization problems, the kind of things that we're uh, describing currently with regards to the Evo grid. I mean, I think the historical legacy is that period of time people were more receptive to actually taking subtle risks for very great rewards, and what happened after that period was an immense kind of conservatism which went into software development and very much moved it back to kind of black box technology which has really nothing to do with an artificial life narrative. So my own feeling is that we haven't had a day of sunshine since about 1999 in terms of being artificial life developers and what I'm interested in doing very proactively uh, through you know things like Biota is strengthening the community to a point where we have a level of respect where we could be connected to something like Apple, as Larry Yeager was initially with regards to Polyworld or Sun or a wide variety of these other companies. I mean, Google springs to mind. Certainly my early interactions with Google seemed to indicate that they were relatively receptive to ideas of artificial life. And I talked to a number of folk at Google who had used Noble Ape and knew about Noble Ape. And, um, you know, certainly I could list a wide variety of artificial life projects. I believe yours as well, Gerald. And they knew about them. So, I mean, my sense is this could return. But the problem currently with artificial life, and I'm hoping that uh, I am Darwin will move this percolatus a little bit further up, is that unless you listen to things like the Bio podcast or you occasionally click on a Boeing Boeing link or things like that, it's very easy to believe that artificial life is dead, that artificial life died with the, you know, the winter when Dawkins stopped talking about it and, you know, when other folks stopped talking about it. And really, we need to percolate just above that narrative. I mean, I think what Bruce is doing with the Evo grid has the potential to get a wide variety of very powerful thinkers re-energized, and certainly a shout-out to Dick Gordon as well, because that's what he's doing with his book. Curiously, I'm in correspondence now with textbook authors who are starting to see folks such as Larry Yeager and... Uh, the folks in the UK that Jamie Matthews is a graduate of. I mean, these kind of people, there are artificial life courses that are coming up now. And I think there's a need for textbooks. There's a need for the information that we hold with regards to actually, you know, on the academic end, if not the popular end, conveying the information that we hold. So, I mean, that's my feeling currently. I've, I've kind of seen a way forward 
what what's when John Cumbers showed up at, at the first full official uh, Great Thumb Silicon Valley Bay Area group to do his talk on synthetic biology, I realized that there's this incredible potential of merging merging of efforts because then John and I had lunch at NASA Ames where I was drawing out the first Evil Grid the movie uh, themes because I realized that this is a guy who's trying to think algorithmically about biochemistry and doing massive scale simulation can really help the synthetic biology field and of course they have their own their own uh, algorithmic programming people trying to do that there's someone working for Martin there's a student working for Martin Hanchik and I'm, I'm not sure I pronounced his name right, the Protocells group in uh, in Denmark at the Flint uh, Research Group there. And they're trying to do, because they're trying to create real bilipid lipid, uh, protocells and get them to do things in real chemistry, they're actually, they have a parallel programming effort. And Martin has told me, hold off for another month till the student finishes writing up a paper and then we'll start to I'll start to collaborate with him and get some input from him and people like John Cumbers. And I think that what happens then is if if you're if you're really trying to make a low level simulation that's kind of like a cheap and dirty chemistry, you start getting the interest of, of large firms that are interested in pure research in this area. And then I'm hoping uh, and also I have to point out also that that Oshri Akhtar from from SRI, there is an actual NSF grant uh, proposal that's due at the end of the month on doing a sort of synthetic biology. Um, and so th- there are opportunities, and our NASA projects continue to support our little team, uh, and I've been able to do that for about 10 years now. Um, so it is possible to keep a group going. It's a lot of effort, uh, but it's possible to keep a group going consistently for years. So I think that all in all, I think if we can couple artificial life with some emerging powerful fields like synthetic biology or theoretical and synthetic biology and then go in to the grant writing process or maybe eventually it's part of a startup like uh, uh, Mr. Gertzel's startup, um, I can't remember the name of it, uh, that does, does this kind of simulation of biological systems, then you, then you can start pulling in uh, large funding. Eventually, it may be that they just want a tool to help what they're doing, as it's no longer artificial life. But fields like ours that are very, very theoretical and very visionary often have to have off elements of themselves and align with sort of practical real-world real or laboratory research in order to, to advance. And the same thing happened to the the lofty ideals of artificial intelligence when it calved off computer vision in one aspect and expert systems in another aspect. The original concept of artificial life or artificial intelligence remained, but lots of people got lots of funding to work on some very narrow aspect of it. And in terms of the funding question, I mean, this is a kind of perennial bio-to-life discussion point. But I think what you're describing is very interesting, and I don't want to disagree with with what you're saying, but I think part of this is the idea that artificial life has some intrinsic benefit to a wide variety of fields. And the way in which we communicate that is, in some regard, a meta-problem to curing the idea of the artificial life winter, 
but I think it's critical that we need to be able to convey we have gathered together a body of work over a long period of time that has involved a wide variety of thinkers, a wide variety of books, a wide variety of ideas, and organically, as the name suggests, we have percolated these ideas and strengthened them in their own right, and this is the intrinsic benefit of what artificial life is. Certainly folks like Dick Gordon and Larry Yeager and people like that in academia are already leading the charge with regards to this. The Artificial Life Journal kind of moves in its own circles, but it seems to be doing this as well. I think the interesting point with regards to um, certainly what John Cumbers is doing and what others are doing in the kind of biological realm is, is important and will certainly lead aspects of artificial life forward, but there are other intrinsic benefits in artificial life development. Gerald, can you think of any that we haven't touched on? Well, it, uh, it's certainly a, a brand of computer challenge, which uh, which you know brings out the best in in some people to you know uh, rise to that challenge. It's um, uh, you know the unglamorous part of a, a simulation that you're talking about like this is uh, you, you're basically deciding which shortcuts to take. So uh, you know th- those are those are interesting computing challenges. Um, other than that. Uh, yeah, simulation of uh, of real life, uh, like uh, Stefan was doing, seems seems interesting. It's not exactly the uh, the soup idea uh, that that Bruce is talking about for the for the deep artificial life. But that uh, I don't know. That's uh, the, what 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 kind of things uh, can we concretely point at? Well, I think this is interesting. If I can just take a step back from that, listeners may be curious why we spent two episodes talking about spiders particularly. And really through those two episodes, I wanted to illustrate a point that oftentimes what we read and the ideas that we have coming into simulations actually results in the simulations that we create. And I think as artificial life developers and particularly as we're looking to see where artificial life goes through our own development and the development of our peers, the directions and the interests and the readings we take are, are very important. I'm um, reflecting on the uh, Greytham Silicon Valley talk because certainly um, I also got an email which I forwarded on to uh, Bruce from Joseph Nekvatel with regards to his discussion to the kind of popular art community about what we're currently you know, simmering in the biota community and how actually to convey this in a kind of cyberpunk narrative. So, I mean, I think we are only limited by what we read in some regard, Gerald. I mean, I think we can we can find ways of using artificial life methodology in a wide variety of problems. It's just a matter of isolating the problems and looking at how we apply the algorithms. Does that resonate with what you're saying? Well, in a way, um, the, the, the thing is, I think, you know, one one thing that was really interesting about uh, Conway's life, if you want to really go back to the beginning, is that it's not uh, a simulation of anything. You know, it's not, uh, there's, there's no physics involved. Cellular automata are really easy that way. You know, there's uh, are implicit relationships between nearby things. Uh, when you go beyond that, you're, you're doing shortcuts in some way or other. Um, so, you know, there's always arguments, uh, suggesting that it's not like real life because you're not using real atoms. Uh, if you go on a little further to the uh, the wet artificial life idea where you're actually trying to, uh, you know, do like Craig Venter or something like that, where you're actually making uh, artificial life out of uh, existing 
components that come from life uh, that that I think you know that then you have the advantage of uh, computing with real atoms instead of uh, simulating things so that that uh, is very exciting I think that will eventually uh, be called artificial life and and uh, and and you know what we're doing is is better classified as simulation yes it's very 19th century to think of real atoms in a kind of physics context I think in terms yeah, of but the way it, 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 uh, it dovetails with what Bruce was talking about, alchemy. Certainly, certainly. So to conclude the discussion with regards to the artificial life winter, I think like many discussions on bios life, we probably have left no conclusions by the fact that the way we approach the problem will ultimately give us the, uh, the solution. Bruce, is that your sense listening to this discussion? Yeah, and I think... All you can do, and what I'm trying to do with the Evo Grid, is just put a singularly powerful idea out, the idea of artificial life, in, in a new way, in, in, in this YouTube movies, in talks, uh, trying to make it relevant, and put the idea out and try to excite a new generation to work on it uh, and to get the grants and to keep it going. And I think that that's what I'm trying to come out of the starting gate with on this PhD work, and I'm hoping that it uh, bridges over any winter and maybe gives us gives a whole new burst of energy to, to people who want to contribute. And speaking of the next generation, as this is a family-oriented podcast, I'd like to allow Gerald, well, firstly, I'd like to thank Gerald and Bruce for participating in this evening's discussion. Uh, the topic, let me just bring up my show notes, I'm sorry. The topic on November 28th, Friday, 8 p.m. Pacific, the hobby of artificial life. Uh, per previous podcast, we are in the process of moving, so this may take a few days to get out. But Gerald, somewhat, I mean, I don't think the simulation ever kids with regards to these kind of things. I was walking home maybe a week ago, humming Black Hole Sun. I kind of tapped it into my phone, into Twitter, and lo and behold, your son had just recorded Black Hole Sun. Would you like to give an introduction to it? Yeah, what they uh, they did was they produced a CD from his uh, high school, if you want to call it that. It's it's actually a gymnasium, which means that it's uh, they they study, uh, for example, old languages. Uh, he he studies six languages at school, including Latin and Greek. And uh, the school he goes to has now been uh, in existence for 680 years. So uh, to celebrate that, they. Uh, they produced a CD with uh, talent from uh, students uh, at the show and uh, or at the at the school, and this was a recording made by Mitchell and his uh, girlfriend Josephine, and uh, they are uh, they they're they're always uh, busy with music. They've now actually got a, a, a bassist and a drummer, so they're they're actually forming a real band now. Yes, I'll, I'll probably is- include one of your YouTube clips as well because theme. I mean, she has that kind of rock star straight face as she's doing all this passionate singing. It's quite impressive, as you'll shortly hear by a live listener. So, Gerald, would you like to give some short radio-style introduction? First of all, I'd like to say the uh, the YouTube videos are doubtful because she keeps asking me to take them down. <laughs> so they, might, oh, no. <laughs> they might not be up for long, but... Uh, okay. Well, the yeah, the introduction. It's uh, this is this is my son Mitchell and uh, Josephine doing uh, the Black Hole Sun from uh, from Soundgarden. <laughs> 